Hello and welcome to episode 3 of What Editors Want, the podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview a different editor from the world of publishing each week to find out what it is they look for in a manuscript. I'm delighted to say that this week's episode is with one of my all-time favourite publishers, Granta. My guest is Senior Commissioning Editor Anne Meadows. We met to discuss her work on books like The Heavens and Convenience Store Woman, publishing novels from America and Japan into the UK market, the sometimes disappointment for an editor on missing out on a book you have loved or worked on, and stay tuned to find out which author was swayed by the powerful combination of Turgenev, Samuel Beckett and Jennifer Lopez. And as always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode. Enjoy! today from uh, Granta Towers here in Notting Hill. Yeah, Holland Park, West London. Yeah, and we've just been talking about how the building may or may not be haunted. It's an old pub that's been converted um, and when we were testing the recording there was a strange static so I imagine maybe there's like a a ghost of a publican somewhere rattling around. I personally believe that that is the only logical thing that could possibly (laughs) have happened. Um, So before we crack into your own books, um, I'm sure anyone who has any interest in literary fiction at all will be aware of Granta, but could you tell us a little bit about it from, from the internal point of view? Yeah, Grant is a relatively young publisher. Um, I think we've been going uh, since the magazine was revived in 1979. Um, And the books department sprung out of the magazine. So Grant Magazine is a literary quarterly and it launched the careers of people like Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. Um, They published T.S. Eliot back in um, the Cambridge of the 1920s. And then in 1979, an editor called Bill Buffett uh, came along and modernised it and turned it into the sort of print form magazine it is today. Um, the book side, we uh, started as a non-fiction publisher and we were the first publisher of Robert McFarlane. We did his first two books, Mountains of the Mind and The Wild Places, both of which were wildly successful. Uh, and then since then, we've gone on to have a really strong fiction list. So we published Eleanor Catton, uh, her first novel, The Rehearsal, and then The Luminaries, which won the Booker Prize in 2013. Um, we have a really strong American list with Ben Lerner, A.M. Holmes, uh, Patrick DeWitt's first two novels again, Ablutions and Sisters Brothers, we published. Uh, and now, um, along with the English language work, we do a lot in translation. So we're known as the publishers of Hang Kang, Hang Kang's Vegetarian, and then her subsequent uh, two books, and Hiromi Kawakami, Walter Kampowski, Herta Muller. Um, it's all what is known as literary fiction um, which just means that it's fiction worthy of a critical appraisal that we hope will still be around in 20, 30, 50, 150 <laughs> years playing um, the long game playing the long game, yeah but like all publishers we have to balance the critical reception of our books with sales mm-hmm. um, but you seem to do that very successfully in a lot of cases I mean, just as a reader um you know, granted books come up again and again on things that I want. <laughs> um, and okay, so and tell us a little bit about your role here. So you're the senior commissioning editor. Yeah, so as senior commissioning editor, um, I'm part of a small editorial team. And my job 
is to acquire um, and edit and publish around eight to ten titles a year. Um, so this year, we're at the end of 2018 at the point of recording. Mm. Uh, I've acquired eight titles for the list and last year I acquired eight and the year before that ten. Um, and it's a variety of fiction and translation, um, English language fiction, and then um, bits and pieces of non-fiction. And just so people have an idea of the scale of the company, like how many people are there here doing your job? So how many books does Grant have publish a year? We publish between 30 and 35 titles a okay. year. So I'm responsible for just under a third of them, I guess, at the mm. moment. Uh, and there are 24 of us in the publishing company as a whole, which includes the magazine. In the editorial team, um, at the moment, there are two uh, editorial directors and then myself, the senior commissioning editor, and then... Um, my colleague Carl Bradley, who's our junior editor, and we are all sort of acquiring titles. Right, and what? Because um, I think it's always a bit interesting for readers the uh, what happens when a, when an editor or when a publisher receives a manuscript. What sort of strange uh, magic is going on in there? How they decide what they want and don't want. And one of the things I'm finding interesting about doing these interviews for the podcast is that every publisher works slightly differently. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you have a? Uh, are you autonomous? Do you have a uh, acquisitions meeting where you pitch to the rest of the team? How does that process work? I think almost no one in publishing is autonomous. No. I think when you're autonomous, <laughs> I, it would be glorious, but there would probably also be problems very, very quickly. Very immediately. Um, so the way we work, uh, when I receive a book from an agent, if I love it, I circulate it to the editorial team and we get together, the four of us, and we read it together and we talk about its strengths and we talk about its flaws. And it's kind of up to me to make a publishing argument for that book and to say how it will work in the marketplace and then we go to the wider team and we go to sales and publicity and marketing um, and we kind of have the same conversation again but with a wider field of input and then uh, if we're all agreed that we want to offer we offer on the book and then it, like the real fight to acquire something begins yeah right um, okay let's we've got in front of us a stack of some of the books you've worked on maybe we should let them tell a bit of your story. Um, the first one I've got here is uh, Catherine Lacey's Nobody Is Ever Missing. Yeah, so um, this was my first solo acquisition. Um, I acquired a book previously uh, in collaboration with another editor, but Catherine was the first writer who I took on by myself. And um, I used to read this series called Re Recommended Reading on a website called Electric Literature. It's a brilliant series where an editor or a writer will pick... Um, a short story or part of a novel that they're really excited about and write about it and someone I don't remember who um, had chosen Catherine Lacey and so I started reading the short story and I thought it was phenomenal um, just it was sort of love at first line <laughs> she has such a um, such a powerful use of language so sculpted and she has these sort of long run-on sentences um, yeah she's got this thing where she's um from word to word she's being very playful and then suddenly arrives at this kind of truth that like cuts mm -hmm. you really deep um and there's a couple of people who like she reminds me of actually more uk writers and people like um ellie williams wrote the trib and other stories last year um and one of my favorite books um of recent years pond by claire louise bennett don't know if you came across that um which i, t I totally loved uh but again it is that thing where it is um, almost misdirection that this mm -hmm. is something fun and light and then it just suddenly isn't and it, it, mm -hmm. it it's 
just utterly brilliant. Um, and you've you've got two other books coming from Catherine, is that right? So we published Nobody's Ever Missing, I think, in 2016, I think. And that you can just, I can see here, it is absolutely covered in quotes yeah. of people loving it. Um, you know, the Jeff Dyers and every single newspaper for published by yeah. the looks of things. Um, we got phenomenal reviews. And then, um, so we've published two books since, actually. Another novel called The Answers, which, again, is very, very well received. And we have just in September this year published her short story collection Certain American States which has been absolutely everywhere and got these big long five star reviews which and is am I right in saying that I just spotted it in James Woods's four books you should have was it in the New Yorker four books you should have paid more attention to this year yeah which yeah. is kind of I mean four is not very many and James Woods is not yeah. <laughs> um, that's incredible yeah and there was a wonderful Anne Enright reviewed it for The Guardian and, and it was this sort of rave about the mathematical precision of Catherine Lacey's prose and mm. the games that she plays with language like you say the kind of misdirection where you think that you're on one emotional journey and then you're on another um yeah so I I, I emailed the her agent and said I read this short story and I was wondering if she's doing anything and they wrote back and said yeah she's written a novel are you interested and you said yes and I said yes <laughs> anyway. yeah um, and so you had acquired the UK rights before it came out in the US at all Yes, not long before, I don't think. I think it was maybe nine months before. Mm. Um, and how does that relationship work? Because, I mean, I think people are um, aware of how a traditional publishing deal works in that, you know, a publisher in the same country as you buys the work and works on it. But when you're kind of coming in from a, another territory, as it's sometimes called in publishing, how does that kind of work? It depends. So with Catherine, I mean, Nobody Is Ever Missing was done. There was no editorial work needed. Um, with her next book, The Answers, I contributed edits alongside her. She actually has two editors in the US, so she has three editors in total, wow. which is maybe too many. But um, So I sent her notes as well and worked on a couple of drafts. Um, so you do, I think the level of involvement varies book by book and author by author but um i think maybe particularly with um younger authors or maybe because mm -hmm. uh catherine and i had met um and we developed a relationship when i was publishing nobody she was happy to have notes from me as well yeah that must be so interesting um i mean i three editors i'm still <laughs> thinking about that um it takes a a brave author i think to to um accept that level of input maybe i don't know my experience is that all the editors I've worked with, all the, sorry, all the authors I've worked with have been grateful for mm. um, having multiple viewpoints. I think it, another novel I edited, we did have a situation where I was saying one thing and her American editor was saying another, um, and the author has to navigate that. But at the end of the day, um, it's the author's book, and mm. they have to make those decisions. And all you're doing is making suggestions, and they can yeah. take them or not. And I, I guess maybe less so in Catherine's cases, but something I've heard from some of the other editors, maybe less so in a, a US to UK situation, but is when the UK editor is involved at that early stage of the text being written, um, uh, maybe coming at it from a UK point of view, which may change how it is in fact written or presented, or uh, which I think is always an interesting, I don't know, uh, yeah, that is point really to get interesting. To. I'm working on a non-fiction book at the moment where um, there are certain things that to me, the author's American, and there are certain things that to me um, seem completely unknown and fascinating. And I'm aware that to an American audience, um, some of the history involved will be much more familiar. So right. we're trying to navigate yeah, yeah. that. 
Um, yeah, and that, it's, a, it's a problem that comes up a lot in translation because right. American translators particularly quite often Americanize, in my opinion, um, the sort of dialogue. So mm-hmm. you'll get a, a, a Japanese novel where someone says howdy or something and it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really chime <laughs> yeah, yeah it feels incredibly tonally wrong to well, me well that uh, leads us quite nicely onto the next book which is a uh, convenience store woman which has also been incredibly successful foils book of the year um, amongst many other rave reviews and awards um and like that's something i i haven't just finished this book it, it is quite interesting because the dialogue in it is purposely uh, you know, she does not see the world how anyone else sees the world. Um, it is not an Americanism. It is very much the narrator's ism. Um, but even if there's a, there's a, it's quite a brave choice in the sense that there are some things that are so blatantly Japanese from the foodstuffs they're selling in the shop um, to not be footnoted or, you know, not to force feed the reader, but to let them live in that unknown um, sorry, there wasn't really a question involved in no, that. But well, what um, was the process of like acquiring that book? Was that, again, another one that was fully finished by the time it came on your desk? This is a curious one. So um, I should say that the translator, Ginny Tapu Takamori, um, is completely phenomenal. And she, um, she was brought up in the UK and she moved to Japan and she lives there now in the sort of suburbs. But um, she made a lot of really, really interesting stylistic decisions with mm. Convenience Store Woman, which I think... Um, have really brought the novel alive and it was as you say it's a difficult book to navigate because the narrator's point of view is so odd um, and you're having to deal with how she sees the world and the idiosyncrasies there but you're also having to try and translate that idiosyncratic worldview across languages so yeah. it's a really phenomenal um, really phenomenal yeah, piece it of was, translation it was something I um, encountered when I read Han Kang for the first time for instance which uh, you know her decision to become a vegetarian completely uh, confounds everyone in her life and that for me was wondering what well, is this um korean culture is this alternative mm-hmm. korean culture you know not knowing what the reality was and where the book was living in relation to it yeah. um and that actually made it more interesting you know it mm-hmm. I, I um and this book as well i think it 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 trusts its readers a little bit doesn't need to dumb it down for anyone yeah and it, it's interesting i mean it's been a huge success internationally it's sold and sort of 33 territories so mm. it uh, in the uk i think um people have really received it as a kind of feminist text <clears throat> which is fascinating i think it hasn't necessarily been seen like that um everywhere it's been published but um what was your question oh how i acquired it yeah, yeah so this was a really strange one um we published circumrata in granted japan which is a fantastic issue of granta magazine dedicated to uh I think half the pieces are Japanese writers who have been translated into English, and then the other half are English language writers who, for the Japanese edition, they translated into Japanese. But everyone's writing about Japan, so it's Japan as seen from outside and from the West and as seen internally. Um, And she had a story in there called A Clean Marriage about a couple who love each other very much um, but never, ever want to have sex with each other, and they decide they want to have a baby and they have to go through this weird... Um, very mechanical uh, sort of (laughs) odd form of IVF which involves suction Um, (laughs) and it's sort of grotesque and funny and slightly tender and anyway I thought she was amazing so I was waiting for her um, I was waiting for this novel and the agent sent it to me and when we have works in translation we work with external readers and so I sent 
um, convenience store woman to an external reader and the external reader came back and said I don't think this is serious enough for Granta's list and so um, I ended up passing on it in the original and it was picked up by a US publisher um, and they got the whole thing translated brilliantly by Ginny and um, sent it to me in the full translation and I was like oh god it's brilliant (laughs) (laughs) Um, my reader was totally wrong Mm, but not too Um, late fortunately not too late, but it meant we were in an auction, so okay. it was more expensive. Right. Yeah, more expensive than it would have been. Um, but you were determined. But we were determined, and we were better informed. It's it's tricky mm. working with translation because you're taking punts on things, and yeah. it's an expensive business because you have to you know pay yeah. the translator for their work. Sure, sure. It's interesting. Both of these books. I mean, um, having read them in the last couple of weeks in the run up to to today, um, both nobody's ever missing and convenience store woman. There's both these kind of young female narrators at the heart of it who don't quite know how to live in their world. And I started made me thinking when I read them kind of back to back was that the narrator from Nobody Ever Missing is like someone, fr- the woman from Convenience Store Woman who never found her convenience store and must instead kind of roam out there looking for something. Um, That's a really interesting idea. I did at one point have um, this kind of crisis of identity where I thought all I'm publishing at the moment are books um, about young women who... Um, find themselves at odds with the world but um, I mean but there's worse things to write books about yeah there are worse things to write books about and um, it turns out not to be true I am I think my list is very dominated by female authors I only published female authors this year but I am publishing two men next year <laughs> <laughs> and several men in the future so it's not um, not all women so both of these books so far you've mentioned having come across the author's work before um, acquiring their novel um, and how does does, does Grant a Magazine help you in that regard do, do they discover lots of things that subsequently end up on your desk they do yeah um, I mean Grant a Magazine is a sort of really rich resource um, I also try and read quite widely so mm. um, one of the books that I really loved but lost this year was um, a collection of short stories by a writer called Nicole Flattery um, who I'd read in The Stinging Fly and then um, I bid on Sally Rooney's book a couple of years ago and I was oh, very wow. familiar with her work because of Granta actually she was in the um, Granta Best of Young sure. Irish on her, on her first book mm, yeah yeah I mean it was on both of them but yeah, right sure yeah on the first one um, so yeah I mean I think how you acquire changes slightly um, so I mean I, I've been doing this eight and a half years which doesn't sound well, it sounds like a long time in some ways and not at all in others. So I'm still quite green. But at the beginning, and certainly with um, Catherine Lacey and um, the first book I acquired jointly, which was Hiromi Kawakami's Strange Weather in Tokyo, I you know, I was very young. I was an assistant editor and then a junior editor. And um, agents don't really send you very much at that point. Mm. So you have to go out there and find things. It's your job. Mm. Um, so before you have this kind of network of connections, I was just endlessly reading journals endlessly reading things online um and it meant that i could discover things whereas now my reading is dominated by submissions sure i bet it's less me adventuring out into the world and more the world coming to me i was going to tell you that i actually um interviewed for a job at granta magazine once when i was incredibly green um so at the time i was interning at faber uh, for Hannah Griffiths and Hannah was in the process of acquiring uh, Grant's own Max Porter's oh, yeah. uh, Groove Fellows and uh, it came up in conversation that there was a job going on in the magazine 
And but because of some weird timing things, uh, I think Sigrid, who owns Granta, was not available that week. So I ended up going to her house on like a Sunday oh. and um, being about as intimidated and scared. You know, I think I was 20. And I know. And I, all I can remember, apart from shaking, was a brief conversation about Nabokov <laughs> and just being like, incredibly nervous. And I, I'm sure like made very little sense <laughs> so I couldn't really blame her for not getting the job <laughs> that sounds like um yeah that sounds like a very intimidating it was I mean it's it's yeah. per- it's fortunately at least left me with a decent anecdote and yeah something. um so both of the books we've talked about so far have uh come from Japan and America respectively mm-hmm. the next book I've got on my list is Gwendolyn Riley's First Love um who is a UK-based author um, and so how does that differ from the two books we've discussed, that acquisition and that work on the text? Yeah, it's, um, oh, that's a, a two curious questions. So um, Gwendolyn, that's her, I think, fifth book. Yeah, I want to say fifth. Um, and her first four were published by Jonathan Cape. Um, and she had incredible, incredible reviews. Mm. Um, she was reviews. one of those people who was just waiting to find, waiting to blow up. Yeah, yeah. And I then think this so. is the book when she she blew up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, um, I, I knew of her work, um, and the agent rang me and said I, I'd been in to see her a year before, and I think I'd brought her Catherine's book, and she said, you know, I think this one might be for you. And um, I remember I was nervous about reading it. I didn't want to start it because I. It was. It's a strange sensation. It's almost like you have. You can feel like the heat coming off the manuscript, mm. and you're. There's an anxiety as there is with any um, anticipation of, of emotional turmoil and flux. So I started my commute home, which is very long, and I was desperately reading other submissions, and I didn't. I wasn't getting anything from them, and I knew I was just getting closer and closer to um, Gwendolyn's manuscript. Um, and I finally started it, and I didn't stop reading. Um, until it was done which it's sort of a cliche in publishing that I couldn't put something down but it wasn't like I couldn't put it down it was like it had nailed me um, to my sofa and there was no hope of of being released by it Mm. Um, it is is a ferocious book it's a ferocious book and um, I still I mean there are are sentences um, there are sentences in that novel which I think are perfect which is Mm. incredibly rare and you know before um, before I came to Grant, I did sort of four years of studying English literature and I'm completely devoted um, to style and stylists. And I think Gwendolyn is an immaculate stylist. Mm. Um, it's certainly got, um, I mean, particularly men in it who I hate more than people, like hate <laughs> more than I've, people I've ever <laughs> met in my life. Um, That's good. It, it really like... <laughs> I I was trapped by it, but I couldn't turn the page because I was so furious. Because yeah. um, you still think often people, I think, you know, you talk about Gwendolyn being a stylist. Lots of people's ideas, you know, of, of course fiction, you have to enjoy it in some way. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to make you happy. Um, and that's not what this book, or maybe even all of these books do. They're, you know, <laughs> but, they're, you know, they're, um, they're asking questions of the world I think each of them in their own kind of different way I'm not a great believer in yeah there are some books that I love which I suppose you could argue make 
make people happy but um i don't think it should be fiction's aim no no, no. I, I concur it's the pursuit of truth and uh, just while i like thinking about gwendolyn as a stylist and like some you know we've touched on it briefly about what um unites these books um but i mean is, is lent something you look at because just looking even at the books we're going to talk about you know we're talking about something between 200 and 300 pages broadly speaking which lots of people would consider a short book mm-hmm. um uh, is that something that is is conscious to you or is that just about finding or does it matter at all it's not conscious i mean i think um some of my favorite books are very long uh but in terms of yeah in terms of what i've been attracted to certainly um you know i've got um my sort of five years worth of acquisitions on the shelves downstairs and i don't think any of them are longer than 350 pages Mm. yeah I think it I think it's more of a trend in contemporary fiction and I think that it was interesting the book of judges came out with um some I thought slightly absurd statements this year about editing uh in which they said you know that there were lots of very long books that actually had a short book desperate to get out and I I didn't agree with um most of what they were saying but I do think that you know brevity is the soul of wit and mm. over a long canvas it's it's hard to sustain it's hard to sustain yeah if something's going to be long it better have a point to be long absolutely and i think the the long books that i really love like um Bolaño's 2666 mm. uh, are formally inventive and playful and change or, or something like catch 22 which again yeah. maybe isn't even that long but yeah sure sure <laughs> Um, there has to be uh, there has to be a riddle that causes that um, causes yeah that I think book. anyone who sets out to write a long book has made uh, has fallen at the first hurdle mm. it it needs a real for me to it really needs a real point to it if it's going to fill out that kind of length absolutely um, um, but it's been really refreshing for me I think in the last because um, you know there, it's one of those. Uh, f- what would you say trendy sentences that comes up in publishing every now and again about the length of books and booksellers hate this length book or that length book or that size book or this size book um which i don't really think has any bearing in reality ever uh but it's been really refreshing i think the last few years to see a a sequence of really successful shorter books Mm. and both publishers and authors being confident enough to say i can do this in Forty thousand words. I don't need eight years. Yeah. Um, Two of our big successes this year. Um, I mean, Convenience Store Women is sort of one hundred and seventy pages, but we've published two novels, West by Caris Davis and Ghost War by Sarah Moss, yeah. both which have done very, very well, and both of which are maximum forty thousand words. Yeah, I, and Sarah Moss is an interesting one because you know all of her books are incredibly well reviewed. I mean, anytime I meet a Sarah Moss fan, they just cannot wait to talk about Sarah Moss. Um, and this book, I, I mean, I was asked to review it for a Dublin magazine. And it's the f- for a short book, it was the first time I ever asked the editor if I could have more words for my mm. review. Because um, there's so much to say about so short yeah. a thing. And it was been interesting following Sarah's career because I think this is probably her shortest bo- book by quite a way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it really, that... Um, it felt concentrated that mm. led, like it was the same whack but in a this smaller package yeah I think um so Sarah Sarah's been with us longer than I've been here she was um my boss the woman who hired me Sarah Holloway bought her first novel Cold Earth which uh is set in Iceland I think that's right because oh, I've read um her non her yeah, non-fiction book about um 
living in Iceland for a year. Yes, yeah. Yeah, which she's is attracted really, to cold places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she went kind of before it was trendy. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's a kind of like a, a a good friend of mine is married to an Icelandic man, and we went there uh, last August, and uh, someone gave me Sarah Moss book and with with urgency in their eyes and said, "Read this, read this now," and it completely. Um, changed my whole trip and experience there um she's just this i don't know what it is about sarah moss i've kind of i need even more words in that review to try and put my finger on it because i haven't quite done it yet um ghost wall in particular i thought was so uh timely for a book that is about <laughs> the iron age yeah um, yeah it's very true it's been hailed as a sort of um which is really interesting it's been hailed as a sort of brexit book yeah um and it's obviously a book about male violence and control as sure. well um, and for anyone who hasn't read it, it is, um, is it Sylvie who's the girl and she goes with her parents to an Iron Age reenactment and her um, father is a kind of working class man but is absolutely uh, besotted with ancient history or prehistory and he's amongst a bunch of academics and students who kind of look down on him I guess mm-hmm. and he, I guess the Brexit metaphor is he is utterly obsessed with trying to find this root of Britishness mm. that they keep telling him doesn't exist mm-hmm. which only makes him angrier and drags the whole thing towards danger yeah um, and he's he's desperate to control um, the world around him and particularly the women his wife and his, his child who's the narrator yeah mm. Um, um, but going back, you asked me um you asked me about acquiring Gwendolyn's novel and whether yeah. the process was different um, yeah. so she'd had these books with Jonathan Cape and they were parting ways and the agent had sort of sent first love to um a bunch of editors i don't know 10 or 15 and we ended up in um a small a small but very fiercely fought auction um for the rights to first love so fierce that actually one of um one of the other editors he's a friend of mine threatened to punch me <laughs> <laughs> that's when you when know we you've won. got a good one and uh, i think um because we've talked quite a lot about commissioning generally mm. It's just in this instance when you've acquired the book talk a little bit more about editing uh, uh, by which I mean kind of line editing how much work were you doing at, at that level on this book? Yeah so um, Gwendolyn um, as part of the the acquisitions process she came in and she met the team um, and we'd never met before I, I, I had friends who knew her but otherwise we'd never met um, and I said to her in the meeting you know I talked about how much I loved her work and how extraordinary I thought First Love was and I said that there were things that I would suggest but that she was free to take them or leave them um, and it it's interesting I mean I think different authors need different things from their editors and need different things on different books but I think Gwendolyn is someone who needs almost no editing mm. um, like I feel a bit embarrassed sometimes when she calls me her editor because I don't I don't really think she needs it yeah um, so what we did after I'd acquired it was I went through very very carefully on the level of the line um but i changed very little and most of the suggestions i made were um sort of like you said ways that if she wanted to she could expand it or make it longer Mm. um and she came back and said uh no i don't want to make it longer but in the process of doing this um we realized that various of the timings were wrong and that some of the um it's curious because first love is is a book in which the narrator Neve, I think, is um, she tells you that she's trying to um, explain the truth of her life and trying to account for how she's come to be in this series of, of compromising and abusive relationships and in the sort of marriage um, that has you think has maybe trapped her, although it becomes clear I think that actually she's choosing 
the mm. sort of violence of her past. Um, but so there's a kind of fog of confusion around Neve. She's 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 talking to you, but she's also hiding things from you. And so you, as a reader, are trying to work against her narrative. She's not quite unreliable, but she's she's unreliable in the sense that we're all unreliable when we look at our own lives. Mm. Um, but there was another fog of confusion in the first draft, which was just that a lot of the timings didn't really make sense, and it wasn't always clear when things were happening in sequence. So that was the edit that I did. Really, was um, sort of fact checking and clearing yeah. it all up. That's something that I find myself doing in my job a lot, which is uh, finding something I really love, wanting to publish it, and almost just stress testing each bit of it. Mm, so yeah. it's not necessarily changing it, but it's like, are we sure this is the right title? Yeah. Could it be this? Um, and, you know, is, it, is there a subtitle that would be helpful? Yeah. These kinds of things, which, um, again, I always say to my, to my authors, um, we don't need to change anything, but if someone asks you, are you sure that's the right title, you better be damn sure you can say yes, because yeah. otherwise you'll always think about it. And just while we're on it, are our titles something, um, you know, did that book come to you with that title? It did, yeah. And um, I had, I'd bought, for the this meeting where Gwendolyn came in, I'd bought um, a copy of Turgenev's First Love mm -hmm. and a copy of Beckett's First Love. And then um, I made a joke about Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> which <laughs> uh, she liked. And it was the combination um, of Beckett and Lopez that did it in the yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I do a lot of changing titles. Um, so the, like I said, the first translation I acquired um, Hiromi Kawakami's novel we published it as Strange Weather in Tokyo but it had already been published in the States as The Briefcase mm. and the original title was um, The Teacher's Briefcase and I read it and I thought the title was absolutely terrible and the book was gorgeous <laughs> um, so I spent a really really long time just going through the manuscript and it's a novel about a young woman um, he's in her late 30s he meets her old high school teacher in a sake bar and he's in his I guess his late 60s and they start this awkward friendship which gradually turns into um, uh, a reluctant romance and reluctant on his part rather than hers um, and it's a very very beautiful and playful and then ultimately devastating novel mm. um, but halfway through when the um, the narrator realises that she's in love with this um, really quite elderly man uh, they're drinking too much because they drink too much the whole way through the book and they're on the, like their third bottle of sake and it starts um it starts thundering outside uh and sort of over the noise of the thunder she says i love you um inadvertently she just sort of blurts it out because she's drunk and he says what strange weather we must be having oh dear um and that's that's, <laughs> that's where so it much came better from. but it's yeah. interesting like the briefcase sounds very much like a crime novel oh or it's something. just awful yeah. but i find <laughs> i mean awful. again uh, uh again with authors i find i'm not i'm very rarely at odds with them because it's where uh, i don't get try not to get into arguments that's never a good thing to do but it's often about uh, education saying well we want the book to sit alongside this and this and you mm -hmm. can see that these are why that would might but yeah the briefcase that's such a dramatic change in it is yeah and um like i said i've done it a few times and kawakami-san came back and said um you know fine and i trust you and i talked to her about it later i met her and i said you know how does it feel having someone change things about your work when it's been such a long time since you wrote it and it's a different language and it's a language you can't read and she said um that having your books come out in translation was like when your son brings home a new girlfriend and you're pleased and you're happy but it's not really 
you it's not really a product of you it's something related to a product of mm. you it's your book um, in law it's your book in law yeah <laughs> um and i think it is easier with books in translation i think to make those interventions yeah um, and i think authors are often a lot happier when they are able to slightly let it go a little bit when they're saying this is my version and you're adapting it or whatever yeah. like when i have some authors who have um been fortunate enough to have say play adaptions or tv adaptions or anything like that the the best thing i think advice that they or way they can approach it is to think this is your your take on my thing and to you know it's not my thing anymore yeah um yeah definitely but moving away from the world of fiction you also acquire some non-fiction um and we're talking specifically about uh, a book about michael jackson yeah so this is um this is a book i published this year by a writer called margo jefferson um and again uh as with catherine this was one of those kind of love at first line things um margo is a phenomenal stylist mm. um she wrote this memoir negro land which is about her upbringing in Chicago um, and the mixture of privilege and racism that she experienced and what it's like to exist at the kind of intersection of those things and to be being told constantly that you have to um, be part of, I think they called it the the talented 10th, you know, the sort of upper echelons of, of black society and that you're representing the whole of your race and what that does to the fabric of your being. It's an incredibly... Um, insightful and quite a coy memoir because as with a lot of writers I love she um she is revealing a great deal about herself but she is also talking about her reluctance to reveal and her desire to desire to hide and conceal um so I think I think she's just um I think she's extraordinary and we again the book um I acquired it maybe a month or two before it was published in the states so it was very very late in the day and we did it thinking we can't not buy this um but it was going we thought it would be difficult because it's a memoir and memoir mm. is difficult to sell and because she's american and american memoirs and the, um, the context of the discussion around race here is quite different to the context of the discussion around race in the states where it was at the time um and then it just got uh named book of the year by basically every american publication <laughs> and it was um it won the national book critic circle award for biography which is an incredibly important award mm -hmm. and which had this wave tidal wave of press which we then added to um and it was shortlisted for the bailey gifford prize here um in its inaugural year so it, it again it did really phenomenally well um and i think yeah, I, I think she's one of the sort of great American writers. And On Michael Jackson is actually her first book. It's this sort of little slip of a essay or a dissection of Jackson and his um, his presence and his relationship to the freak show, um, sort of Jackson, the gender-bending icon, Jackson, the abused child. Um, and we published it to coincide with the National Portrait Gallery exhibition on Jackson this year. Um, so it had come out in the States previously, is that right? So back in 2006 or something like that, yeah. when he was still alive, I think. Yeah, so it's also an interesting book because it occupies this very um, curious position. It was after Jackson's trial, so his, his kind of downfall, um, but before his death. So before, I mean, the way that Jackson is talked about now, I think, and remembered now, there's been a lot of memorialization and people have backed away from the yeah. child abuse allegations and um he's kind of being um canonized which yeah. it's a really i mean and this book uh written at that moment it has taken on something in those intervening 
whatever it is 12 mm-hmm. years because you keep with a book or any book you expect the, the author to kind of approach some sort of understanding or ending or conclusion and the thing about this book and about Jackson is it won't let you do that mm-hmm. um, because you can she's obviously a, or is or was a massive fan because you couldn't write this book if you weren't but uh, the the difficulty inherent in trying to be a fan um, and you know that's uh, that's got such relevance now with mm-hmm. everything from the Me Too movement to whatever. But uh, it, again, it's a it's a unsettling book with no easy answers. Mm-hmm. Good, um, yeah. Good, yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, great, and so that's that. That's lots of things you've published in 2018 and before. But we've got the next book. We've got to talk about the last book. We've got to talk about is something coming out next year in 2019. Yeah, Sandra Newman's The Heavens. So um, this is our lead title um, for spring next year, and it's publishing in May. Um, And it's been a real dream. Again, Sandra, um, she'd had four books published with Chatter and Windus, one of which, um, Country of Ice Cream Star, was longlisted for the Bailey's Prize. And everything she has written has been wildly different and inventive. Um, She actually, she had a connection to Granta Magazine too, because she had a memoir piece which became her um, her book-length memoir, The Changeling. Um, and I mostly knew her from um, Twitter. <laughs> she's really <laughs> brilliant on Twitter. Um, she's very, very funny and inventive and um, tells these gorgeous stories about um, studying at the University of East Anglia under Sabold. Um, wow. Yeah, I know, wow. Wow, yeah. <laughs> um, and being a kind of, um, I think she's sort of a prodigy as well. Um, but the heavens is uh, a novel about a couple who meet in New York in the year 2000. But it's not quite our year 2000. It's very idyllic, mm. um, and there's a woman who's about to take control of the White House, and there's no war anywhere in the world, and the UN has planted its flag on Mars, and it's 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 just kind of blissful and dreamy. Um, but when the woman of the couple, Kate, goes to sleep at night she has these strange dreams and in the dreams she's in Elizabethan England and the plague is coming and she has these visions of the end of the world um and the novel's about the butterfly effect so each time Kate dreams uh she makes the contemporary world the world of 2000 that little bit less idyllic Mm -hmm. so it's about this sort of decay towards uh, a dystopia which I thought was completely fascinating um and it's about what that does to this couple who are newly in love um, so it's a very moving uh moving exploration of, of what love can hold like how it can stand up to uh mental illness or the end of the world or yeah time it's, traveling yeah time travel i mean it, for me it was somewhere between you know you started out with something and then it became something else and you thought you had a grip on it and then it became something else you know it's somewhere between kind of ali smith and cloud atlas mm-hmm. um that's good <laughs> she's taking notes so if that ends up on the cover <laughs> I'll take credit for it um, but it is like at one point this kind of touching love story but it is so much more and even what I found so fun about it at times is trying to notice what had changed in the times when she because it is sometimes something very minimal it is sometimes someone's heritage or if they can or can't speak French yeah. um, there's one time when she comes back and shocked that uh, people in America don't speak French yeah. which I thought was great um, but also of course the world that the, the uh, dystopia she moves towards is shockingly um, 
recognizable yeah. um you know she's horrified you know some and there's a kind of ongoing almost joke in the book about does she know who the president is which of mm-hmm. course is one of these questions you ask people to know if they know what's going on mm-hmm. and she never knows who the president is and they're all horrified but it's just it's it's on one hand like deeply charming and other hand deeply upsetting yeah clash of things but hugely inventive um Great. Well, thank you so much for um, talking about some of the books you worked or working on. The last question that I'll leave you with today, which is these are lots of books you have worked on. Do you have one book of recent times that you wished you'd worked on? Yeah, so um, I have a number. And I think um, one of the funny things about uh, commissioning is that you have your list and you have this sort of stack of books that your sort of calling cards um and then there's this other list the sort of phantom list that um people don't don't see and it's the books that you bid on and lost and uh every year it gets longer um (laughs) (laughs) and uh sometimes those books go on to do amazingly well and, and sometimes they don't but um so the the book that i wish i could have published um is one which I think at this point in time no publisher in in the UK would say anything otherwise and it's Sally Rooney's novel Mm -hmm. Normal People but um, I was one of seven editors bidding on that book in 2016 it Mm -hmm. would have been 2016 and I had loved Sally's work for a long time I'd read some of her short stories um, and I was completely obsessed by her and it was the first 2016 was a bad year for me in acquiring and I lost a lot of books and it was the first really big blow um and I'll I remember it I remember it vividly because um it was kind of my first experience of how emotional this job is that I mean like with Gwendolyn Riley's work you get this kind of physical sense that comes off the page and it's a mixture of um, the talent of the author and the excitement of encountering a totally new voice and often a book that very few people in the world have read. You're one of a, a handful or maybe a score of people who have had access to these words. And you start to build up uh, through the acquisition process a way that you would publish it and these kind of dreams that you have for it and you have ideas about covers and all these things. And it, then if you lose it, there's just this sort of like phantom limb um, and I very much had that with um, I've had that with a few writers, but I think um, Sally Rooney's. It was the first time that it was I was I was it was like a breakup almost mm. for me. It was very bizarre. Well, very... I have to say, even just as a reader, I was gr- like grieving to lose those characters. Yeah. So to I mean, it must have I can totally sympathise uh, on a certain level. Yeah, it was, and I think actually that's one of the really interesting things about it that I've lost a number of books too many books since but I've heard lots of people saying just what you said that um mm. it's so spectacular that you do you do feel sort of bereft afterwards um mm. but yeah I would have I would have loved to have um I would have loved to have been publishing those novels Join me next week when my guest will be Emma Herdman. Emma is the editorial director at Hodder Fiction, one of the biggest publishers in the UK, and its literary imprint, Scepter Books. We'll be discussing Emma's background as a literary agent, what it is that agents look for in a book, and what authors should be looking for in an agent. 
We'll also be discussing the importance of the fastest growing area in all of publishing, audiobooks. And thank you for listening. If you want to stay in touch with the show, you can follow us on Twitter at whateditorswant or get in touch at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com.